Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our show. I'm Robert Grant, and today's guest is Dr. Abigail Gewertz, author of When the World Feels Like a Scary Place, Essential Conversations for Anxious Parents and Worried Kids. The book focuses on having conversations with your family when things are going on in the world that make it seem uncertain, fearful, uh, anxiety-inducing, and so forth. She's here today to share with us some techniques that you can use in having these conversations. I know you're going to really enjoy it. Be sure to let us know how we're doing. Email with us, contact us. Our new email is robsprobablywrong at gmail.com. And we're definitely looking forward to hearing from you uh, wherever you are in the world. So thank you once again for your listening, and I hope you enjoy. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind, and you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we are joined here by Dr. Abby Gewertz. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you, Rob. So you you wrote the book, When the World Feels Like a Scary Place. And I saw this title on Amazon and I'm like, whoa, that, that pulled me right in. I work as a uh, registered clinical counselor in the elementary schools. So what made you come up with the idea for this book? You may well ask here in 2020 when the world really does feel like a scary place. Right. And believe me, I've had several people ask me if I wrote it when COVID hit. Mm. And uh, my response was, oh, if only I could get a book out in three months. But <laughs> no, you know, the idea for the book, believe it or not. So here we are on election day in the US. But the idea for the book came to me around the time of the election of 2016. So mm. that was four years ago. And why 2016? You know, I felt that in 2016, the world had become a slightly scarier place for children and their parents. And by 2016, so I have four kids. My youngest was already just becoming a teenager. But um, this was the era of lockdown drills in schools, right? Who would have imagined 10 or 15 years ago, and it's not that violence has gotten worse, but who would have imagined that we would be having to worry about lockdown drills in schools, getting explaining, helping our children to understand why we have to practice for a guy with a gun coming into schools. And this is where you diverge from us and you don't have to worry about that so much in Canada, I guess. Well, actually we still, we participate in lockdown drills as well. Yeah. yeah. And, okay. and, and for listeners, what, what that is, is um, I believe it was around Sandy Hook. Is that correct? When yeah. the idea of, okay, we need to strategize if there's somebody with a gun or of a serious threat to the safety and well-being of students that we have to have something in place. And I'll never forget, I was uh, like a new teacher as a TOC and uh, which is like a teacher on call right in my first day of teaching this the principal comes on and she's like okay everybody we're it's it's a, a lockdown everybody locked down and i'm like what so i close all the blinds and everything and i'm hiding behind like a post 
and I like the door is locked and I'm ready to like jump out like a ninja and attack this person. Turns out the whole thing was just a drill, but I had, it was just the craziest thing. And again, in your book, you talk about the importance of the adult being calm during right. these discussions and right. these moments. Right. And I, I can talk about that, but, but it wasn't just the lockdown drills in 2016. Right. It was the eve of a highly acrimonious election, mm. you know, it, back in 2016, not talking yes. about 2020 even. Right. It was the increasing awareness that we are entering an era in which we may not be able to reverse climate change. And we have had extreme weather event after extreme weather event. And people are be were beginning to recognize climate change as an existential threat, right, in the mm. mainstream. Right. Uh, it was also the year 2016 after the year on record that the, the highest year on record for the number of migrants crossing borders around the world since World War II. You think about 1945. Wow. We didn't we didn't exceed that per capita number of migrants leaving, escaping countries for better lives, forced to escape until 2015. And ever since we've seen increasing numbers. And that doesn't even sort of, you know, that's not even talking about hate crimes, which have yeah. been up year on year and lack of civility in our public discourse. You know, uh, people sort of becoming increasingly acceptable to slur mm -hmm. in public, to, um, you know, on social media, uh, bullying, things like that. Um, and of course, over the last five or 10 years, the number of, you know, the, the, the access to technology and by default social media of our children has gone up exponentially. And you probably know this as a school counselor, but the average age in the United States at which a child gets one of these, a cell phone, 10 years old. So as parents then, by the time our child reaches the age of 10, it is increasingly difficult, more and more difficult to stop the world coming in. Right. Well, and, and you made a good point that although the world, statistically speaking, is perhaps a safer place, it does not feel that way because of how inescapable information is of scary events. Right. Right. It, it's 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 actually fascinating that crime's gone down over the last thirty years. Hmm. Um, now, with, you know, in terms of school violence in the US, the last couple of years, you know, have been there have been more single incidents, but school shootings are not new, but crime has gone down over the last 30 years. And yet over the last five to 10 years, kids have been feeling more anxious and more depressed and suicidality has increased and things like that. Um, and yes, you're right. It's the world's is increasingly entering, you know, our children's lives. And we parents are feeling, I think, increasingly unable to be the filters that we should be. Well, and, and you mentioned too in your book that uh, sort of to counter that, or not counter that, but to follow up with that, is that parents matter more than ever but parents are now more busy than they've ever been, right? right? You know, mom's working, dad's working, and 
it's like, when do we find time, quality time to sort of sit down with our kids and, and have these conversations? I mean, so much of it seems that it's like, you know, play the Xbox, play the PlayStation, distract yourself. Right. But you're, you're saying that there's kind of a call to parenting that we need to, we need to step it up a little bit. Well, it's exactly because of what I just said about parents feeling increasingly overwhelmed by mm. the world, unable to filter it for their children, not having the tools at their disposal, because these were not things that we had to talk about with our kids a generation right. ago, for the most part, that I decided to write the book, because I really felt that parents needed a kind of a playbook mm. to navigate these tricky world events. And I... I intentionally decided to go to events that happen outside the home. You know, certainly, look, we've always had divorce. We've always had, you know, conflict and, and violence sometimes and things like that. But we're talking about I'm what I'm really focused on is the scary things that happen outside our homes. And I think, you know, the argument I make in the book is those the the reason I think that parents feel can feel sort of overwhelmed by this is not only because they don't have the tools because this these weren't issues that you would talk to your kids about a generation ago but also because parents are increasingly feeling helpless and taken up you know swept away by these events themselves and there is nothing more scary to a child, arguably, than seeing the person who's supposed to look after them being scared. You know, as yeah. clinicians, we used to say, a terrified parent is a terrifying parent for a very young child. Now, you work as a psychiatrist, or Psycho excuse me, psychologist, and you've done work in the, uh, in the past of parents that have gone off to service like uh tours of service right correct can yeah. you tell us a little bit about about your history there because you you wrote a really uh important model for that i think yeah. you mentioned in the book yeah i mean i um it, we were just taping a veterans day podcast for uh a local company 3m uh uh here in the twin cities and um you know i was talking a little bit about our sort of my team's 10 years of working with military families. Mm -hmm. It's been an honor and a privilege. And really, there's so much that our nation's military families can teach and Canada's for that matter, can teach the rest of the rest of the populace. Um, military families deal with stress that uproots families all the time. When a parent deploys to war, you are not only separated from your parent and your spouse, partner but you're also worried for their safety because right. they're not just they've not just commuted to the next town for work they've yeah. gone to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria wherever and so we learned we learned a lot and so our um, my colleagues and I uh, have developed a parenting program to support and strengthen military families after a parent returns from deployment um, and we've learned a lot about military family resilience that way. And really many of the lessons that I learned from that program, developing that program are included in the book specifically about this process of what, um, what I call emotion coaching, which isn't my term. It's right. uh, John Gottman's who's very close to you in Seattle and his colleagues who sort of helped us to understand 
what happens, how children learn about what emotions are and how they can be helped to use emotions in a healthy way rather than um, in, a, in a way that increases things like anxiety and depression. Yeah, yeah. so to, to be open, to have an open dialogue, active listening, right? As a parent, we're active listeners um, rather than being repressive in our emotions, which I do think is, is quite new because growing up, I, I don't know how it was for you with your parents, but it seemed like emotions were a difficult thing to talk about, right? And it was sort of like, uh, okay, well, I mean, my mom was really good at that because she was a teacher and educator. She, she understood the importance of emotions, but my dad, he wasn't the easiest person to talk to about certain things because maybe he didn't have the, the tools. And now more than ever, I think it's important that we're able to have these conversations. Right. right, right. So in the book, you know, I start the book by having parents think about their own yes. styles, their own experiences, how their experiences have shaped them, the kinds of sensitivities they have. Listen, Rob, you know, you know, all of us are sort of triggered by different kinds of events, but all of us have the experience where something happens. My, my aunt gets really sick with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, I find out that my child is being bullied in school. Uh, there's a severe weather disaster and my best friend's lost her home. It, it could be something as simple or as, you know, as, as some really awful stuff I just read on social media and that made me so angry. But we all have things that sort of, you know, they, 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 we absorb them and they actually sort of almost bowl us over, right? Mm. I'm talking about in the instant, not necessarily over the long term, but we just get so hot under the collar or we get so upset, we get so sad, we get so anxious that what happens is we often react impulsively rather than respond intentionally. Now, that's not to put a value judgment on either of them because all of us do this. But what happens often when we're swept away is that we can't take a, you know, it's hard for us to take a breath when we're, you know, sort of whoosh, you know, sort of uh, the, the, the emotion sort of overcomes us. And then what happens often is that we behave in a way that afterwards we regret. So we mm-hmm. sort of, you know, tweet that 140 character tweet was so mad or we're so sad on behalf of our child that we call up the parent of the child who's doing the, or we, we, we say to our child, when we're so worried about our aunt, we assure our child, everything's going to be fine. She has COVID-19, she's in the hospital, but I know she's going to get better. Right. And of course, those are things that, you know, often we end up having to eat our word or some, you know, we wish we could have a redo or a rewind. So, so that's one thing, this sort of idea of, when something happens to us, we can uh, react, react impulsively or we can respond intentionally. And some of us have more reserves to be able to do the intentional responding. For example, some of us were just born to be more laid back people and others of us have big emotions, right? Um, and so, and then in the book, I talk about this sort of style that you were brought up in, because as you know, you were just sort of saying, we get two gifts from our parents. We get the gifts of their genes and we get the gift of the environment they bring right. us up. 
we bring our children up in. And so, you know, you talked about having a dad who was more of a stiff upper lip guy, right? You know, and literally- Stoic, yeah. <laughs> stoic, right? It's yeah. very Canadian, it's very English. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the sort of let it all hang out, sort of uh, any anything goes. Um, and, and again, you know, those are extremes. Most of us are in the middle. Um, but, but recognizing where we came from, how we learned about emotions and what we do, I think is a prelude to then investing in strategies. I'm only talking about small in the moment strategies, like taking a deep breath or going yes. for a walk or standing and noticing the feel of your feet on the floor, looking around and just seeing five things to make sure you're sort of anchored anything to put you back in your body and away from being stuck in your head. And that will give you the pause that will allow you to make a decision about what to do about this thing that's about to sweep you off your feet yeah. and eventually and pre um, hopefully prevent it from sweeping you off your feet. That's what you need to do in order to be able to protect your child and have that conversation with your child because our children learn about emotions in three ways. And so you might think of yourself, sort of bring yourself back to your own childhood. We learn by number one, watching our parents, right? So you watched your dad deal with his big emotions and you watched your mom deal with hers. We also learn from the way our parents respond to our big emotions or we as parents respond to our children's big emotions. So when a 10 year old boy walks in the door and he's crying because someone bullied him on the bus, right. one parent might say, stop your crying. Big boys don't cry. Go to your room and come out when you when you're calm. And another parent might say, I see you're crying, honey. Mm -hmm. Something happened. You, you look like you must be sad. I know when I'm crying, I feel sad. How are you feeling? Do you have that feeling in your tummy as well? Or is it somewhere else in your head? And then a third parent might say something like, oh, oh, did something bad happen? Oh, forget about that. Come sit down. Let's get you a snack. Let's get you a drink. Let's right. do something else. Let's distract you. So those are three different ways of paying attention to children's big emotions. And that's a very important way that kids learn about emotions. And by the way, the third way that kids learn about emotions is explicit conversations about emotions yeah. which is the least frequent way we don't usually sit around the table and just talk about emotions we usually talk about things but if we go back to the way the parent responded in each of those three instances with the, the boy who came in crying the boy whose father said big boys don't cry stop your crying that's what we call sort of a punishing response right um you know or to quote someone i actually once knew you don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about. Right. Right? And that, is, that message literally conveys to kids that emotions are dangerous and they yeah. should not be trusted and they will be punished. The third response, oh, don't worry. Oh, oh, come in. Let me, let, me, let me wipe those tears away. Give you a snack. Let's do something and distract ourselves. That's what we might call sort of a dismissive response. It's like, you know, your emotions don't really matter. Let's move on to other things. Let's, let's put, put them away. The third response, which was the middle response, which says, I'm paying attention to your crying. I want you to tell me how you're feeling. I want you to tell me what emotion you're having and where it is in your body. It tells children that emotions are to be nurtured and they're very important signals. And indeed they are. For example, you know, anxiety 
is very important because it tells us when danger is coming. Now, people who don't have anxiety get into all sorts of trouble. They don't have because they don't. I mean, it's rare. Thank yeah. You know, and we know that people who have too much anxiety, you know, who who are fearful, who, who feel like there's a lion in front of them, even when there isn't, you know, that's another kind of problem. But in general, you need to have some anxiety to be to be adaptive and to be able to survive in the world. Yeah. So it's very important for us to nurture because what we know is that kids whose parents are dismissive or invalidating or punishing of emotions are children who are more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression. And conversely, parents who engage in emotion coaching, who teach their children how to navigate and respond and honor the emotions, those kids are more likely to be protected from those kinds of emotional problems. Well, it, it, Another really good book is written by uh, Gaber Mate, Gabor Mate, and it's uh, hold shoot, what's it called? It's a book about how parents need to matter more than their peers. Yeah. And I think it's hold on to your kids, something like that. And and this is also the author who writes that you know no two kids have the same set of parents, which which again goes back to how a kid perceive you know uh, a child perceives their parents and. It's all based on their perception, right? What they're what they're seeing, but in this book, it it talks about, like you're saying, how we have to have these conversations. And kids, when they feel like they can come to you about anything, they will come to you for anything, right? Right. But when, right. Oh, I was just gonna say what I say to parents is, who would you rather your child learn exactly. about? Eventually, environment. Would you rather they learn from you, the kid sitting next to them on the bus? The kid on the playground, like, yeah, <laughs> a parent who says, "I want my kid to learn about an important thing from someone else." Right, and and, and these conversations uh, are not comfortable, and that's why we need to train ourselves. Again, you kind of go over this in your book, of, but I think it's like ten minutes or something. You say that you have conversations about emotional coaching and talking to kids, and then that sort of gets them used. To to doing it when it matters right? right and i love how in the book there's a, there's a you, you you again you start on the focus of the parent right the parent needs to be okay to have these conversations they need to be prepared right. and uh and and in the book in the examples that you use you'll see that the parent will like you know walk away for a second and come back and there's lots of breaks because I know in my own style that I need to work on, that I very much want to solve the problem now. Right. And that just does not work for kids. It doesn't, it just doesn't work really effectively. But it, but you know, we do that and we learned that a lot in our work with military families who are absolutely brilliant at problem solving. Yes. And their kid comes in and says, I had a nightmare. Mm -hmm. I'm scared of the dog. And the parents say, well, we'll get you a nightlight. <laughs> Problem solved, you know? And the, the, the thing is, and I, I think many, many parents, they, they feel like my job is to solve my child's problems, right? Right. The, the thing is, when we do that, we short circuit the way we're all feeling. Yeah. And feelings, again, are powerful and important signals and it is our job as parents also to help our children learn how to navigate their emotions. 
And the best way to do that, I believe, is through what I call these essential conversations. They're tough conversations, right? They can be really difficult conversations, if especially, you know, you're talking about bullying, social media bullying, and you yourself were, were, were bullied when you were a child. And it's really hard. So you really right. have to deal with your own emotions. As I say in the book, put your own mask on before assisting others so that you can sit down and truly have a conversation with your child. And the conversation opens with what we just talked about, which is responding to the emotions, helping your child identify and label their emotion and then validating it. You know, again, your child comes in. Let's take a different example. Your 12 year old comes in and her teacher's just been, they've just been told that her teacher's been hospitalized with the virus. And she's really worried and she's panicky. She's scared that her friends might get the virus and her, her, her teacher's daughter is in their class and she's sick too. And you, your heart sinks because you've, this is what every parent's been worrying about. And so what you do is you take a deep breath, you offer a glass of water, which buys you a little bit of time. Yes down you say honey I see you're really anxious I can see you're kind of a little jittery and I wonder how you're feeling in your tummy and she tells you a little bit about what happened and you say you know I would be freaking out as well if I were you I remember when I was a kid and my best friend got really sick and I was so worried about her that's what's called validating her emotions right. You haven't even had the conversation like, you know, we're also worried parents, right? We're jumping straight to problem solving. Like, what can I do about the fact yeah. that how can I make a that's that snow plowing, right? right. It's As I like to call it. Yeah. And so we have to learn to live with the discomfort, both our own in terms of dealing with our big emotions that enable us to sit down and truly listen to our kids and then tolerate going through the emotions first identify, label, validate, and then really listen. Now, you know, often we jump straight. We don't even want to listen because we don't want to hear all the stuff, right? Yes. We don't, we don't say it to ourselves like that. You know, we, we, we think we know what they're worried about, right? They're worried about their friend who's sick and their, and their teacher who's sick. But when we sit and actually listen, sometimes we can be so surprised at what mm. our kids you know, and I think particularly with regard to the virus, it's really scary for parents because if they really listen to their children, their kids are really, I mean, there is no kid on earth who isn't terrified that their parents are going to die. Right. It's the fundamental, like sort of the, the, you know, it's sort of the most basic fear of any child. And that in itself is very, very disturbing for parents. But You've again, you, we have to be able to put our own masks on and then turn to our children and really listen to them if we are going to help them feel hopeful and empowered and engaged and feel that they can do something. And so, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I agree with that. I mean, and I like when you're doing the problem solving. It's not just the parent, like, this is what we should do. Then we should do this. Then we should do that. It's like, well, what do you want to do? Well, I don't want to go to school tomorrow. Okay, well, you know, and then there's clear boundaries on, well, if we do that, and what I love is it, it's not just like, no, you're going to school tomorrow. It's like, well, if we do that, it's just going to make it worse. Like, there's a reason, it still writes it down, but it's this idea of, let's get your idea, and then we don't shoot it down. 
right? Because if you if the first thing that they say, you're like, that's a that's a horrible idea. Good luck right. getting more ideas out of them, right? right. So we just it's very much like a brain. I think you even use that term, you know, brainstorming, right? Two people right. together trying to find as many solutions to the problem as possible. And all solutions are considered. Right. Right. So, right. So, so exactly. So we're listening to our child. We're hearing about her concerns, but we're not stopping there. Yeah. We're going to have a conversation that is going to result in solutions. So yes, there is problem solving, but it's going to take its turn after we've dealt with the emotions and we've actually yes. listened. Yeah. And so exactly as you said, what we do is once our child really tells us what's going on. And, and by the way, you know, some parents have raised this in some of the book events I've done. You know, what if my child is hysterical? They're crying. Do I still have the brainstorming conversation? And I say, I would say no. Yeah. Your child is still experiencing big emotions. Then what you need to do is make sure that you and she have an opportunity to kind of de-escalate, just maybe, you know, take some breaths together, have dinner, watch a little bit of TV, and then, but don't give up on the conversation, mm -hmm. because the conversation is the thing that's going to empower your child, right? So in the example that we started of the girl who, you know, of your 12-year-old who is really upset because her friend and her, her teacher are both really sick with coronavirus, you're, she's going to tell you all this stuff's going to come out. She's going to tell you all the worries that she and been having and heard and all the things about the virus and her teacher's got diabetes and she's so worried about her and you listen and then you are, you're going to sort of suppress the urge to say, I promise you, your teacher's going to be fine, <laughs> which right. is what we all want to say, right? honey it's going to be okay the whole snowplow thing and instead you're going to say okay it's my job as your mom or dad to help you figure out how to feel less sad and anxious right. and worried about your friend and how to figure out some practical things that we can do to let your friend and your teacher know how much you care about them so that's your goal for that brainstorming conversation not let me tell you what you can do, but right. you take a turn, I take a turn, you take a turn, I take a turn. And as you pointed out, we're going to set limits around the conversation, right? There are things that it's clear, right? You are going to school tomorrow, if that's what you know, you know, you are, you know, but within those, within that, that sort of within those boundaries, all ideas are good ideas. And, and as you pointed out, like, even if the child says, I don't want to go to school tomorrow, and you know that they are, don't say it then. Wait till the end of the problem solving, the end of the brainstorm, which is when you say, look, you, you know, you know how I feel about, right? We, we, Daddy and I have this rule, right? You have to, you have to go to school. But all these other eight ideas that you had, let's talk about them there. You know, we've got some really cool ideas to work with. That, that ending to the emotion coaching process is incredibly powerful. Because one of the things about a scary, scary world events, whether it's the coronavirus, racial injustice, um, climate events, um, violence, is that they make us feel helpless. Mm. And the world now, particularly, feels like such a chaotic and scary place. 
And that feeling of chaos and fear can easily leach into the house. And so our job as parents is to keep the chaos out of the house and provide a safe and secure routine, stable safety, stability, safety, security, love for our children. It's harder and harder to do that as parents when the world outside is pressing in so intensely as it has been over the last few months. But that's our job. And these conversations that encourage our child to think about what they can do counter this whole helplessness and powerlessness. And they literally sort of are conversations which are focused on what can we do and instilling hope. And so your child might come up with some ideas about like, it might be something as simple as I'm going to use my stress ball when I feel anxious. I'm going to, this is a person I can talk to. And as regards showing my friend, I love her. I'm going to make her a big card and we're going to take it around and leave it outside her house. Or I'm going to, you know, get on FaceTime, organize the other kids to do something. Doesn't matter what the, the, the point is, to help your child do something, do something, you know, engage in strategies right. that help them address the issue. That empowers them. Exactly. Right? That they're not just, you know, like you say, helpless to the world. Right. The other thing that I've noticed in my own work with, uh, with children is that they're incredibly resilient. If we, like some of the kids that have just unbelievable scenarios of, of the environments that they're in are like, they're able to get themselves to bed. They're able to get themselves up. You know, they, they, they're taking care of themselves. So my point is, is that children are incredibly resilient. Are they more resilient now than ever because of the information or, or what's sort of your, your, your perspective on that as a psychologist in terms of the resiliency of children? Well, resilience, I mean, my colleague Anne Maston, who's a wonderful resilience researcher, wrote a paper 20 years ago titled Ordinary Magic. Resilience is ordinary magic. That is, we refer, we talk about resilience in the context of adversity, right? Right. If you live in a low risk environment, you know, middle class, suburban lifestyle, things are okay, and you do okay, we call you competent. Right. But if you've experienced adversity, poverty, uh, you know, racial injustice, um, parents uh, with mental illness or other kind of illness or exposure to loss or yeah. all those kinds of things, that's what we call adversity. And if you are doing okay, and there's no criteria more than okay, if you are doing as well as your low risk peers, we consider you resilient. That's literally what most psychologists mm. research consider resilience and there's been a ton of amazing research on what are the what what is the ordinary magic of resilience and in the top three always no doubt every single study is an effective parent right, right. so it's not a super source that you have inside you that you're born with and you either have it or you don't have it which i think is really important to point out mm. i think it it leads to this sort of idea of you know we can throw away some people because they just don't have it yeah. No, resilience is in the environment. That is, if you have an effective caregiver, someone who can protect you from all the adversity going on, then you can be resilient. And so, and there, it's not, that's not the only thing, but that's 
but for this purpose. The other great thing is, you know, people aren't born brilliant, you know, effective parents. And by the way, you don't need to be a brilliant parent. Again, it's like what what um, what what Donald Woods Winnicott, the famous psychoanalyst, called a good enough mother. Right. <laughs> you just have to be good enough. And um, so, and, and the great thing is that we know from about 50 years of research on parenting programs that evidence-based parenting programs actually change people's lives by helping to strengthen, get, providing them the parenting tools they need. That's what my colleagues and I have been doing for the last 10 years with military families. Right. We know from rigorous randomized controlled trials that if you provide a, an evidence-based parenting program to families, you can make, I mean, they, they, the tools and the skills that they are provided lead to profound changes in the family for not just, you know, parenting, but for kids and for parents' own well-being. So, <clears throat> so the good news about resilience is it's not like you have it or you don't. And it's really highly linked to parenting and mm. Parenting resources work. Which is which is interesting because uh, as a counselor, I work with families. And if you suggest an evidence-based parenting program, it's like, you know, they could, somebody could get offended by that, right? So, which I find so fascinating because parenting is probably one of the most difficult jobs in the world. Yeah. Right. You become a parent. You're like, uh, all right, now what do I do? Kind of thing. You're always on. Right. So. Right. It's right. like, how, how do we how do we make this something that it's like we can remove the stigma from right. getting help as a parent, I guess. Right. No, I mean, I, I think it's a really good point. Look, I have four kids. <laughs> yeah. I and believe me, parenting is the hardest job I've ever done. And I do think that even if you are someone like Barack Obama. Right. Yeah. Whether it was harder being president of the United States or a parent to his two kids. Right. You know, I'm going to leave it open, but I'll like, <laughs> we don't, you know, I need a lot in my town. I need a license to own a dog, but yes. no one anywhere needs a license to parent. It's crazy. It's the yeah. big responsibility we will ever have. And yet you're right. I think there is a stigma. You know, are you telling me I'm a bad parent? I absolutely think there's a stigma around it. Um, and so we need to do a better job of reducing the stigma. It, it's it's there's a stigma to, to accessing services for mental health as yeah. well. And there are many stigmas that are absurd. And unfortunately, we need to do better. Uh, you know, what we say is, and I think one of the reasons the programs that we're involved with work is because they don't identify parents you know we're not talking about parents who you know who've abused and neglected their children we're not we're talking about regular amazing parents who you know the way I talk about it like in regard to the military work that we do is I say to I used to say to the Minnesota National Guard parents we used to be involved with like you would not let your child out when the temperature was below zero. Right. Right. You would make them wear a coat. What what we're talking about is a coat for your parenting and your family when your spouse goes off to war. Yes. Because war is a stressful event. Coronavirus is these are stressful things. And when stressful things happen, we all need buffers. And this, you know, my book is 
a buffer for right. parents who are going through stressful events. That's what it's supposed to be. And parents who read my book are going to be a buffer to their children by using this tool of essential conversations. Well, so I, I just started recording again. So sorry about that. We were disconnected there. No, no. Um, like I was saying, that's never happened. So that was my fault. Sorry about that. No, no. At least, you know, on the phone, when you get disconnected with someone, you can keep talking because you don't know they've gone. Yes. Yeah. You've gone. I didn't keep talking. Yeah. No. So and and, and I do apologize. Where, where were we again? Because you, you were on a really good point. About... I know. I, well, I was on a roll. <laughs> but, you know, between you and me, honestly, um, what happened was I got distracted and I went in, I did a couple of emails. Um, well, you were definitely talking about why, why this is necessary, this book and these essential conversations. Oh, you got it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so what I was saying was that parents in hard times like yes. now, yeah, when parents are so overstressed, you know, they're expected to do three jobs. Yes. They're, they're expected to be full-time workers at home full-time parents at home, full-time teachers at home. I mean, literally. Yeah. It's, it's a, <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. It's a crazy stressful world. This is the time when we all need buffers. And so my book right. is really aiming to be a buffer to parents, to help them figure out how to both create their own buffer and then be a buffer for their children so their children don't experience the winds of chaos like it's easy to do and they can do this through essential conversations so the, the idea is how do i at this incredibly stressful time talk with my children and help them feel to go back to one of the first thing you things you said hopeful mm -hmm. and not fearful or less fearful um, with tools to manage their anxiety and believing that there are things they can do in the world yes there's there's an exercise i do with kids uh and it's they're presenting as anxious or they have all these worries so i say to them hey we're going to do this we're going to get a piece of paper and we're just going to write down everything that you're thinking i'm like oh, i don't know if i want to do that i say well once you write something you give it shape it it stops being infinite because when we just have ideas in our head, they're just going around and they become finite, right? We can see them. Yeah. So even if you write down a hundred things, eventually you're going to run out of things to write about. So we do that. And then it turns out they only have like maybe four or five things. And then we go from there. But when we have these ideas, and like you say, this, this idea of a buffer or these strategies, these skills of just getting it out, instead of keeping it in conversations, that will help us to feel like we do have some sense of control in our lives. Right, exactly. That's exactly it. We can put our arms around things. We talk about small steps to success. And that is exactly right. what we're doing is we're helping our kids contain this and find strategies to be able to cope with it in a positive way. And if you, if you want, I can end with just one of my favorite examples of that. Um, I have just these wonderful neighbors. I, I actually acknowledge them in the book. They're great and they have young children. And my next door neighbor has a six-year-old and in the wake of, in the middle of the summer, it was around the time of the murder of George Floyd here mm. in Minneapolis. It was a 
just an awful time all around the virus kids off school right that happened june i think it was and close to you because very right? close like a yeah. couple of miles down the road and there were helicopters circling <sighs> and the parents were saying how do we talk about this with our children and my little next door neighbor my six-year-old next door neighbor was biking around on the bike we live in a cul-de-sac fell over and broke her leg so it's not bad enough that we've got the virus you can't play with your friends right. you have to wear a mask there's helicopters around because of what happened with George Floyd and there's all these difficult things going on. And there she is sitting out watching her friends play where, with a broken leg. She and her parents got into a conversation about uh, the death of George Floyd and they, you know, she's only six, so they kept it very, you know, very six-year-old, yeah. uh, sort of basic about what happened. And what they talked a little bit about with her was that, um, that, 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 all the things that had happened um, were, were hard for the people who were living there. It wasn't just that this man, um, he died and, and, and sort of it was all, an awful thing, but also that because of some other things that happened, like, you know, the, the riots and the, right. and the protests, that there were people who were living in those neighborhoods who didn't have food because their grocery stores were shut because of the rioting and the looting. And the, and the, you know, burning down of buildings and things like that. And um, there were big food drives. There was a wonderful um, one. Uh, there were some teachers in an, a middle school. They thought there were five teachers. They thought they'd sort of put the word out to the parents to bring food. And before they knew it, there were like almost a thousand people there. My, 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 my two kids, my two teens went and they, they just can't believe it. Um, Anyway, back to this six-year-old, she, uh, they had a conversation, they had an essential conversation with her and she said, and they were brainstorming what they could do. And she came up with this absolutely brilliant idea. And she said, mom and dad, I want to pick flowers. So they, they take her around the garden in her cast and with her scissors and she cuts all these flowers and she makes these bouquets and they, they, drive, they, they pull her down the street in the radio flyer car, the wagon, and she stops at every door and she sells the flowers. She says, I'm selling flowers to raise money for food, for the food drive. She and her friend together, they, they raised $400. And then their grandmas were so impressed that they doubled their money. They, they matched $800. It, yeah. They took their child to the grocery store. They bought $800 worth of food and they took it to the food shelves. And now that... Mm made that child, can you imagine how hopeful and empowered that child felt as a result I, of a conversation, an essential conversation that was followed through with her really being able to do something. And that's the kind of thing that we really want for our kids because one of the things I worry about in this world where literally it can be dangerous to go outside is that our kids, if we're not careful, will learn that the only safe place is inside the house. And we don't want to do that because we want to bring our kids up to be independent and engaged people who live in a community right. who feel empowered to be compassionate and engaged. Well, yeah, and, and I wonder too, with all this anxiety, anxiousness in the world, if something like agoraphobia, the feet, you know, the fear of the outside world is on the rise. Right. Well, we know that anxiety is on the rise. Yes. Sure. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's why it's all the more, that's why I, I am so thrilled. The 
I'm not thrilled with what's going on in the world, but I am so thrilled that the book came out now yeah. because I hope it will be a helpful tool for parents. Who want well, to. it's it's been helpful for me. So uh, here it is. When the world feels like a scary place, um, essential reading for for as you as you mentioned it, stressful times, and it gives us strategies to feel empowered as parents um, and when communicating with our children. So. Dr. Abby, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Robin. Um, yeah, it'd be wonderful to have you on again uh, when 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 the world feels like a hopeful place. Comes there you out. go. There you go. <laughs> so, so what? what it, and lastly, what is next for you uh, as of right now? You know, I'm not sure, Rob. I mean, I I um, I was told the best time to propose your next book is before the first book's out, but. I didn't have it in me yet, but I, I'm, I'm brewing some ideas, so I'm not quite ready to share them yet. But Wonderful. You know, they're brewing. Okay. Well, if you ever have, uh, you know, anything you'd like me to try for, uh, for research or whatever, you let me know. It's a deal. Okay. <laughs> all right. Take care. Once again, that was Dr. Abigail Gewertz sharing with us the importance of having real conversations with the ones that you love. While it is difficult to talk about the things that matter, it is incredibly important. When was the last time you had a conversation with somebody that was difficult, that was uncomfortable? And how did that make you feel? In the end, chances are it was incredibly beneficial. And we do need to talk to people and have these conversations. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love to hear from you. Our new email is robsproblywrong at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.